This is a journey into a magical mystery tour in living color on WTDR. Greetings, my friend. We are all interested in the future, for that is where you and I are going to spend the rest of our lives. You are interested in the unknown, the mysterious, the unexplainable. That is why you are here. There is nothing wrong with your television set. Do not attempt to adjust the picture. We are controlling transmission. For the next hour, sit quietly and we will control all that you see and hear. You are about to participate in a great adventure. You are about to experience the awe and mystery which reaches from the inner mind. It's happening. I can feel it. How would you explain it? It's beautiful. God, it's God. I say God. How do you like that? Why, it's preposterous. Thank you very much. Say what I think. Say what I think. Say what I think. I'm a complete individualist. I'm against communism, capitalism, fascism, Nazism. I'm against everything and I've often wondered what it would be like to be happy 24 hours a day. This is your storyteller. I'm happy to be here with you and I'd like you to join me. I realize what I'm about to say. Home is a great shock. However, using great presence of mind, I'm counting on you to respond appropriately. Information in the form of energy streams in, streams in simultaneously through all of our sensory systems in the form of energy. to the Magical Mystery Tour. In the first half of the show today, we're going to hear an interview I did last week with Ptolemy Tompkins, author of several books, including Paradise Fever, 
The Beaten Path, and The Modern Book of the Dead. He is also the co-author of Proof of Heaven and Just Out, Proof of Angels, the definitive book on angels and the surprising role they play for all of us. In the second half of the show, we're going to hear an interview with author, ethnobotanist, mathematician, and all-around brilliant, out-of-the-box thinker and psychedelic explorer, Terence McKenna. This interview and an additional short piece focus on his thoughts and work on time and the human mind and in relation to his Time Wave Zero project. Again, that will be coming up in the second half of the show. Last week, I had planned and prepared to interview Ptolemy Tompkins about the latest book he co-authored, Proof of Angels, but when I realized that he is the son of Peter Tompkins, the well-known co-author of The Secret Life of Plants, I was really interested in finding out more about him, his life, and how he has been influenced by the unusual circumstances of his upbringing, and how he became interested in writing about the things he has written about. But, as you will hear, we ended up talking about his upbringing and early influences and comparing notes about our upbringing and early lives, and having a very enjoyable conversation. One I hope you will also enjoy. My guest is Ptolemy Tompkins, author of numerous books, including The Modern Book of the Dead, Proof of Heaven, about neurosurgeon Eben Alexander's very unique perspective of his own near-death experience. And your new book that you co-authored is Proof of Angels, the definitive book on the reality of angels and the surprising role they play in each of our lives. Now, your father is Peter Tompkins, the well-known co-author of The Secret Life of Plants, and your stepbrother is a Buddhist monk. Eben is the author of Proof of Heaven, but while my name is not on the cover, I had quite a bit to do with it. I don't want to take credit for being the full author of that book. Okay, so growing up, you were exposed to some unusual perspectives of the world. You could say that, yes. So how have they affected your life and the way you see things? Well, I wrote a memoir called Paradise Fever many years ago, focusing on that. I had a very permissive upbringing. My father had, let's say he had two wives, but he had his mistress and my mother living in the same house, and there were some other women as well. It was kind of a classic 70s freedomscape with everybody kind of running around naked and talking about the tremendous possibility that it awaited humanity now that you know, all the shackles of conventionality had been left behind and everybody was free to abandon all conventional bourgeois mores and just do what they wanted. That was sort of the atmosphere. And that sort of included me. I mean, everybody else did what they wanted. Not that much attention was paid to me, so I could pretty much go about and, you know, pursue my boy's interests unsupervised. 
my father took me to movies that uh, nobody else in the third grade or fourth grade or fifth grade were seeing. Nobody else saw A Clockwork Orange. Nobody else saw Night of the Living Dead. Nobody else saw Twitch of the Death Nerve. Uh, these had to be, you know, kids in my class had to hear reports about them from me because none of the other parents would have dreamed of subjecting their kids to stuff at that, of that level uh, when they were so young. And uh, I don't know, the book is an examination of the plus and minus of freedom of an environment where one is allowed to do anything and where the kind of core value is openness to possibility and belief in possibility. Anything can happen. And when you say anything can happen, that it can have a wonderful sound to it or it can have kind of a horrific sound to it. It depends how you're saying it and what the circumstance is. Yep, I can totally relate. I had some similar circumstances in my upbringing. My mother was quite a libertine. And mm -hmm. I remember when I was, I think I was 15 years old, she tried to drag me along to go see Deep Throat with her friends. Oh, I saw that when I was 14 on a Betamax. <laughs> so I'm right with you. Yeah, I said no because they won't let me in. She was clueless. <laughs> my mother was pretty clueless, I have to say, in many ways. There were a lot of clueless adults back then, and it doesn't necessarily mean they were bad. They were just clueless. Exactly. Yeah, they were yeah. exploring things to the best of their ability. I think they were intoxicated by the idea that maybe life was a better deal than they thought it was, and that was such good news that they just sort of released their strictures all over the place, because... I think it just sounded like a wonderful idea. Maybe life isn't this sort of claustrophobic um, cage that we were starting to think it was. So you can kind of sympathize with them for getting oh, absolutely. excited about it. Yeah, right? that, yeah, that's exactly my take on it. And my mother in particular really went, went wild with that. Sure. She was not alone. No. <laughs> and that sort of left my father in this unlikely position for him as an artist and a musician of actually having to be the responsible person in my life. Uh, <laughs> so it was an interesting role reversal. So your mother was the more gung-ho uh, part of this movement. My dad was the more gung-ho one, very definitely, in my family, but your mother was leading the, leading the charge. She was very promiscuous, and mm -hmm. my father yep. was actually the one who turned me on to all these kind of things that we're going to be talking about. He had shelves of books of, uh, he had the collection of Alice Bailey's books, which I... Oh, sure. Sure, sure, sure. Um, the Confessions of Alistair Crowley, books on Tibetan Buddhism, and tons Absolutely. of other stuff, which I would pick up here and there and just look just to see if there was anything interesting. And early on, there wasn't really. Although it was interesting to see things that I had never seen before that were pretty far out there later on because early on i picked those books up myself when i was about 12 couldn't find anything in them but around 16 17 i started to pick them up again because my father had them everywhere and i was drawn into them i mean i'm talking to you from the basement which is absolutely top to bottom with books like that um i really became my father's son in terms of interests in that department Oh, absolutely. Did you, uh, did you ever find a point where you 
find yourself interested too, or did it remain sort of uh, removed? Oh, absolutely. Um, when I was 17, my father gave me my very own copy of the Tao Te Ching. Me too. The Witter Benner translation. Uh, I didn't get it from my father, but it just electrified me. And I started reading the Carlos Castaneda books. The Don me too. Book. Same thing. Absolutely. <laughs> Uh huh. And then when exactly I went, to, the same thing. And then I went to college, and mm -hmm. my father he was interested in what I wanted to do and what I was interested in. And I said I was interested in philosophy, and I was interested in the brain and the mind, and and mm -hmm. the questions that were naturally arising in my own mind about those things. And he said, "Well, if you're interested in philosophy, you should study the Eastern religions." So I signed up for intro to Eastern religions. And when I got out to college, I very quickly dropped all the courses that didn't interest me. I walked into the class, sensed that there was nothing there for me, and I literally turned around and walked back out. I, I did exactly the same thing. I stayed with the, <laughs> with the interesting classes, like philosophy class, I had the Eastern religions class, and I had a literature class. And I loved those classes, and with all my other free time, I went out hiking in the mountains. In the Eastern religions, nothing grabbed me until we got to Taoism. And at the same time, I was doing LSD and mushrooms and mescaline. Oh, of course, yeah. And I distinctly remember while we were studying Buddhism on one of my trips, giving a spontaneous kind of lecture to my friends on Buddhism from the inside as a knowing insider. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure you know what that's like. Yeah, Ken Wilber has that uh, idea of states and stages where uh, you can pop into a level of development and hang out there for a second, but then you pop back out of it. And um, being able to stay there continuously is a, another matter. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, right. All my friends, everybody else doing LSD and things like that, they would have these very colorful hallucinatory trips. I never had any hallucinations. I just had these awakening experiences. Insights. Yeah. And so for several hours, I would have this crystal clear vision of what is, essentially. If well, it sounds like you had sort of a Huxley Doors of Perception uh, masculine kind of experience where you saw the world around you with a sort of a nominal clarity, but you didn't see uh, electric lights and Mickey Mouse and all that kind of stuff. Exactly. Well, lucky you. But when I discovered Taoism, that's when the lights went off. And they had some great books of Chuang Tzu in their library there, and they were full of magic for me at the time. Later on, I've gone back to those books, and they didn't have the same magic that they had when I was reading them then. They hit you when you're 17 in a certain way. Certainly for me, the, the Tao Te Ching, just, just the minute I saw it in the Witterbinner translation, just how thin it was, how few words there were on each page, and just the atmosphere of pleasant authority that radiated from it. I just, there was something in me that had been waiting to see something like that. This absolutely slender, absolutely non-antagonistic book with the secret to everything. Yeah, exactly. And, uh, very yeah. simple and very clear. Mm -hmm. yeah. For mystery into mystery, existence opens, I think, is one of the lines from the first page of the Witter Binner translation, and I just thought, how fantastic, you know, things are opening. Yes. How wonderful. Yep. And that was, well, actually, that wasn't really the beginning because I, it actually began for me as a child in other ways. Like, I actually had 
a visitation at one point when I was, I guess I was about nine years old, judging by the house that I was living in, where a very, very clear, distinct voice came to me and said, things are going to get very difficult, but don't worry, everything will be fine. I don't know why you bothered calling me up. I mean, that's the whole thing right there. I mean, that's the whole, um, at least the message of the book I just wrote, this idea that we're capable of receiving these bits of information from levels above us that can be of use to us. I mean, I found when I was seven years old, I found, I don't recall any voices speaking to me, but I found that I had a certain sort of sense for atmospheres as a child. It's the closest word I can come to to describe it. And seven was the real year when I felt I lived in this world of real magic where everywhere I looked, there was something hiding behind. There was more to be seen. It was The world was a thoroughly mysterious place, and it was mysterious in a good way. And eight and nine, that started closing up a little bit, and I could sense that it was going to continue, and I sort of told myself, don't forget that that was real. Don't forget those feelings you had. You know, they seem to be going away now. Don't forget about them. And I still remember that. Mm. And, um, you know, a lot of writers, Rudolf Steiner, people like that, will talk about age seven and what happens after it and, you know, single out that particular moment in childhood when that can happen. It makes a lot of sense to me. You are no longer quite able to speak to the world and have it speak back to you. You are going deeper into the condition of modern humanity where we are kind of sealed off from the invisible world and have to make our way in this kind of submarine of uh, closed-off sensibility through a world that seems closed off from us as well, theoretically, because there's something for us to be gained from going through this kind of tunnel of sealed-offness that it's going to, you know, teach us things. But it hurts. It's not yeah. as good. Now, I'm not a, a real student of the Tarot, but it's like the fool's journey of the Tarot, if you're familiar yeah. with that. Yeah, um, there are some... Fantastically interesting studies of, you know, what's called the way of the fool and uh, uh -huh. the Western esoteric take on all of that, which I actually just started to look into. And I find it very interesting, but it's, it's daunting because there's an enormous amount of literature on it and a lot of junk as well. I mean, you've really got to wade through oh, and yeah. find so, what's really interesting. Do you know a writer named Mark Booth by any chance? Reading your book was my first contact with that name. Oh, that's right. He's in there. He's a wonderful writer, and he wrote The Secret History of the World as related by the secret traditions. I highly recommend it. What he says at the beginning, he said, as a teenager and a young man, I hung around sort of esoteric bookstores looking at this book and looking at that book. And I just, I thought there was one book that I was looking for that it was really going to lay it all out for me and really make sense of it. But I never found it. So I decided maybe I should just try to write it. And then when I read that, I thought that was just so great. And it's what he does. He takes all the Western hermetic traditions and turns them into a kind of story of the soul's plight and adventure and situation in the modern world using the wisdom of all the Western traditions. And it's fascinating. Hmm. I had a similar curiosity. I ended up reading everything I could get my hands on 
from all all kinds of traditions, and also right. pra- practicing in many traditions. Where where are you now? When I was eighteen, my mother was also kind of a spiritual seeker. So whenever she discovered anything, she would call me up and say, "Hey, you have to do this," and I would roll my eyes in my head and say, "Yeah, right, forget it." Okay, that's the last place I'm going. But she would have a way of persisting, and when I was in college, I ended up dropping out at a certain point. I ran out As of money did I. in the middle of my second semester. I ran out of yeah, money. Yeah, that's what I did. <laughs> so I hitchhiked out to California, to San Diego, where my mother was living in a spiritual community. My intention was just to visit for a couple of weeks. You know, there's an old saying, the universe works in mysterious ways. Well, I fell in love with that community, and I ended up living in that community for about four or five years and did a lot of very, very intensive meditation practice. This was a kind of a a mystery school that's that synthesized the practices of many of the major wisdom traditions from all over the world. I had the insatiable thirst and curiosity and desire to discover the great mysteries of everything. Now you're a radio show host in uh, Montpelier. Yes, out in the middle of nowhere. Oh, I know the town well. Really? Yeah, it used to have an incredible bookstore that introduced me to, I think, three of my favorite writers, because I just happened to wander in and pick up books by them there. Which bookstore? Uh, I don't know if it's still there. There's Bear Pond and there's Rivendell, and I think this was Rivendell. And I picked up uh, my first Aurobindo book there, my first Owen Barfield book there, and my first book by a Hungarian anthroposophist named Georg Kulavind, and they just happened to be sitting there. I didn't know anything about them, but I was bored, and I picked them up, and they were, you know, really big influences. I hope there are still a few bookstores there. They're dying out like dinosaurs. Yeah, Rivendell has recently gone the way of those things. Bear Pond is still there. Yeah, doesn't surprise me. Used bookstores have always been one of my favorite places to visit, Me too. They're also dying out. When I was living in San Diego, there was a particular neighborhood where there was about three or four blocks that were literally lined with used bookstores. Yeah, those kind of zones are just not around anymore. I can imagine what that was like. That's a shame. I was in San Diego for five years, but there were only a few good used bookstores. But if you were there earlier, I can imagine all kinds. Yeah, there's something about walking through a corridor of books. It's almost like, to me, I often think of uh, the Wall of Ancestors. Yes. When you're looking at a wall of good books, Uh it's kind of like you're looking at the living spirits of the past looking back at you. Exactly. Exactly. (laughs) And and it's... it's, um, I I personally think, uh, you know, there's all these arguments about books versus you know, reading on a computer and stuff like that. Um, I think it was Marilyn Robinson who said, uh, there is nothing more human than a book. And that really struck me because there is something about a physical book that has a magic to it that nothing else has. And the conversation that you can establish with those set words on the page with your own particular consciousness 
is something that can happen in no other way. And I don't know, for a while I was like, why do I like books so much? Maybe I'm just sort of, I fetishize them. And I do sort of fetishize them. But I've now come to realize that there is a real magic connected to books and to words. And that it's all right to really acknowledge the reality of it because it's there. You know, there is just something about books that there is no getting rid of. There's no replacing them. I think you're absolutely right. That was one thing that my father instilled in me was the love of reading. Yeah, my father gave that to me as well. He didn't treat his books well. He'd sort of throw them here and there and stuff like that. And I'm, I, I was, I'm much more fussy. But the essential quest for a book that's going to tell you something, I picked it up from him. We lived in Washington, and he had access to the Library of Congress. And because he was a spy in World War II, he somehow had some deal rigged up with the guy who was in charge of the Library of Congress, wherein he could take books out. I think only congressmen could take, uh, senators, congressmen could take books out, but my father could take books out. So I would go with him sometimes, and we'd go deep into the actual stacks. And you talk about a labyrinth of fantastical wisdom and knowledge, just corridor after corridor after floor after floor, down, down, down with these crazy books all over the place, these ancient things. I mean, it was just wonderful. That was his office. I mean, you know, he was there all the time, wandering around. I love libraries. I've spent a lot of time in libraries, of different libraries in different cities, different types of libraries. Books are just amazing. The written word on the page is, is an amazing thing, and I don't enjoy reading on the computer. Me neither. And it's mysterious. Are you familiar with a book called The Gutenberg Elegies by Sven Burkertz? No. You reference it's, it in the book. Do I? Well, I reference all kinds of stuff in there. <laughs> it's the most marvelous defense of keeping physical books around. He's a guy who grew up pretty much like you and I seem to have. You know, he haunted bookstores, and there was just something about the mystery of the book. But he has some wonderful passages where he talks about what happens when a person picks up a book and engages with it and how the state of consciousness of the person actually can change. I mean, a book read in a certain way can alter one's consciousness as powerfully and as significantly as, you know, taking some drug or other. You know, a 14-year-old girl in a hammock behind her house on a summer afternoon reading one particular story will have an experience doing that that might stick with her for the rest of her life. I'm saying her it could be a young man, too. Well, I can, I can yeah. totally attest to that. I spent a winter up here in Vermont in the late 70s in a cabin that was uninsulated with mm -hmm. a copy of Millerepa's 100,000 Songs of Millerepa. And that book mm -hmm. totally came alive for me. I mean, it was, mm -hmm. it was a living, breathing I, I, entity I, I, for me. I, I get it. And I've gone back to the book, so and it wasn't there. But at that time in my life, that winter, yeah. I literally communed with that book 
and it came to life in my experience, and it was a magical, magical and this adventure. And this is something that you and I have learned, and that I think it's so tragic that, that a lot of people are not going to learn now, because it's exactly what you talk about. You open up a book later that had a certain thing going on with it, and it's not there, and that makes you think. You think about, like, well, where did it go? Now it's just words on paper. Mm-hmm. Before, it wasn't words on paper. Mm-hmm. Well, that's the magic of the door that's open, and then you come back and you can't even find the door. Right. But the door was there. But it sensitizes you to the world as a place full of doors. But yes. they're not always open. You don't know, always know where they are. When you find them and they're open, you can come back the next day to show your friends, and they're not there. Mm-hmm. And that lesson is something that books can teach like nothing else, especially when you're young. And I don't know, I don't want to sound like a grouchy old man, although maybe that's what I am, but I see kids on their devices and stuff, and that lesson I don't see coming across on phones and iPads and Netflix and all that. Well, if they're not making themselves available to the potential magic, yeah. and then they're, yeah. what they're going to do is they're going to say, oh, that's just words on paper without yeah, any direct experience. Which, which it is. Which it is. It's, it's closed. And you've got to bring yourself to it. You don't just go and plug it in, turn on the power, and have it just jazz into you. You know, it reminds me of, uh, you've been to the American Museum of Natural History in New York? Oh, I, I've spent a lot of time there and across the street at the Hainan Planetarium. Okay. I grew up in Manhattan, so... Uh, oh, okay. So I, right. I would go up on Saturday afternoons, and they're very similar to books in that they are doorways into this incredibly magical world. That yes. And I'm bringing it up because of this wonderful story I heard about the blue whale. You surely recall the blue whale, right, in the Hall of Ocean Life? It's a big, 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 big uh, whale yeah. that uh, hung in the Hall of Ocean Life. Yep. And it was a overwhelming experience for me to see that when I was seven or eight. And I think back in the 90s, I can't remember the exact details, but I think uh, maybe a young relative was coming through the city or I was thinking of showing them the whale. And I was told that the whale was closed because they were making the whale more interactive. And I thought, wow, isn't that just perfect? They're trying to make the whale interactive. You know, having... uh, I don't know, stuff so that it's exciting. Because a big whale just sitting there in this day and age isn't going to cut it. And I thought, you know, what a tragedy. Because it removes the child's ability to bring that whale to life with their perception, with their imagination, with their unique perception of that whale. I didn't need that whale to be interactive when I saw it. It just had to sit there, and it blew me away. And it's a skill that I think uh, kids are just more and more losing. I don't know. I'm really starting to sound like an old, grouchy crank. Maybe so, but I, I totally agree with you. I think if children aren't given a clear, open pathway to explore the incredible power of their imagination, that they are missing out on everything that this book, Proof of Angels, is trying to open the door to. The person who wrote a lot about this, often a little bit in too complicated a way, was Coleridge. You know, he talked a lot about imagination as this active activity. I don't remember all the exact 
ins and outs of the terminology, but he discriminated between fancy and imagination. When we use the word imagination, we think of just dreaming up stuff that's not there. Mm-hmm. But there's a, a style of imagination which is actually perception and is related, I think, to what you may have seen when you had those drug experiences because you were not seeing fireworks and neon lights. You were just looking at the stuff around you. But you were looking at it in such a way that that stuff was opening itself up. And what you were seeing was real. It wasn't just some fantasy on your part, but you were looking at the world actively. You weren't just seeing it as this flat screen of stuff. It was also and, rising above the level of, of my prior conditioning. That's, yes. That was, yes. That was the, the magical thing that drugs had on, the psychedelics had on Yeah, because they turned all that stuff off. Exactly. Yeah. You know, reading the world, treating the world itself as a text. I mean, that's such an old tradition. I mean, yes. The world. Yes. You have to plug yourself into the world. You have to engage directly with the world, able to think for yourself and to be open-minded and curious. And that's the magic of books. Because when you read a book, you are quite literally doing that. You don't open a book to close your mind and ignore it. You open your book to embrace a completely new reality. Yeah, you're standing before it, as it were, and saying, here I am. I'm, you know, open to what is here. Mm-hmm. if I can find it. Right. And that same kind of attitude, I like the poet Thomas Trenstrom a great deal, and he talks a lot about nature in his books, and that same attitude that can happen when a book opens itself up can sometimes happen when you're just standing in a natural landscape. Oh, yeah. You see it in such a way where the landscape opens up and allows you to see it. I mean, people in Vermont... I think a lot of people up there are probably perfectly aware of what I'm talking about and experience it all the time. I definitely did. But for me, there was this dramatic contrast having grown up in Manhattan and then moving up to Vermont. I remember as a teenager when I was in high school, I would often find myself in the woods sitting on a stump and just without any intention, just becoming very still and just listening to... Not so much the sound of nature, but the sound that is going on, some might say going on inside one's head. This kind of Uh underlying buzz of the world, of the universe, of whatever. Mm -hmm. That happened to me very often. I never thought twice about it, but it was a very blissful state for me. It sounds a little bit like that Emerson line where he talks about being a transparent uh, eyeball in the middle of the woods mm-hmm. and, you know, seeing everywhere and having it move through him. A lot of uh, Robert Frost's best poems, or the ones I like most, have a little bit of that feeling of the way one can suddenly become transparent to the natural world around, and it's sort of blowing through one. And, you know, there's the noise of the leaves outside, and there's something sort of the noise of the leaves inside you as well. It's a little bit easier to find that up there than it is down here, but with a little searching, it can be had. Although in Manhattan, when I was nine years old, was where I was having a lot of these experiences, mostly in that hypnagogic state between sleep and and waking. I went through a phase where I was every night I would go through a series of these 
very bizarre-like experiences. I tell you, the most happy and the most electrified and the most alive I have ever felt were in some three to four second intervals between sleeping and waking when I was a teenager. I've never had words to describe them, but I looked around in books for somebody to tell me about these things, and later on I found them. But back then, the only mention of it that I could get my hands on was in Paul Rep's book, Zen Flesh, Zen Bones, which is one of the popular Zen books floating around back then. They had some, you know, little cone-like aphorisms, one after another. And there was one that, I'm paraphrasing, but it said something like, between waking and sleeping, there is a third thing. Grasp it. Mm. And I was like, oh, my God, he's talking about that thing. Because, you know, I didn't know, I know nobody had used the word hypnagogic or hypnopompic or any of that <laughs> stuff. But I just had these, like, lightning-like states just in between, which you couldn't hold on to. And suddenly, bam, you were back in your regular state but you were just sort of humming and on fire from this this momentary glimpse of this other world. I mean, uh, those had a huge influence on me, so I know exactly what you're talking about. Mm -hmm. And then I had this one other experience that would be in a, in a totally waking state, and that would be, with my eyes closed, I would have this experience of my what felt like my body expanding to the size of the universe or expanding as far as I was willing to take the expansion, the ever-expanding expansion of the universe, and then going down inside to infinitesimally small size. And it was, it was very visceral. I mean, I was feeling it as if it was as real as anything else I've ever experienced in my life. And that happened fairly regularly for me when I was a child, and it gradually tapered off until I was 18 years old. I had my last experience, and I just, mm -hmm. happened, I just happened to be in bed with my girlfriend mm -hmm. at the time. And I, I narrated the whole thing to her. Mm -hmm. And it never happened again after that. <laughs> Things close up. It's funny. Like, uh, I remember in college, I, had, I was just sort of uh, waking up, and I had a glimpse of a landscape that was alive in a way that was so overwhelmingly desirable and fantastic. And I saw it for about two seconds. And I never saw that one again. It was, it was the most intense sort of um, hypnagogic vision I ever saw. I guess hypnopompic because I was waking up. Um, and as you get older, I don't know, well, I've, you know, one wears oneself out. And, uh, or at least I have, and I don't have the sensitivity that I had back then. But I remember these experiences, and I hope uh, young people still have them. I hope that, uh, you know, I don't know uh, what electronics culture does to one's uh, capacity for these experiences. I have no idea. People may have them still. I mean, my God, I watched so much TV when I was a kid, it wasn't even funny, and, and Me too. I still managed to have them, so... <laughs> Right. Yeah, I've, I've actually encountered some fairly young people in the last several years who have related experiences that were even more interesting and fantastic than the ones I've had. So I think there's hope for the rest of humanity. Good news. It is good news. This world depends on them. 
Yes, a hundred percent does. Hundred percent. We've screwed it up royally. Uh, I get the sensation that young people are really very much plugged into it in a way that I certainly wasn't when I was their age. I was much more selfish when I was 20, 21, and a lot of 20 or 21-year-olds I see today are 18-year-olds. But, you know, it's, it seems fairly clear to me that as the old system breaks down, that larger world that's been there behind all this whole time can come into view again, because that's not going anywhere. You know, the issue is whether people can perceive it, not whether it's there or not, because nothing in this world can touch it. You know, Donald Trump can't touch it. He doesn't even know it's there. And as the world starts to break itself up and the infrastructure crumbles and all this kind of garbage goes on, maybe that world will start to assert itself and be visible to more people. That's sort of the optimistic side of this everything falling apart thing that I see around me every day, and I'm so overwhelmed by it. Well, how, how about this for a saying? Real men have real inner experience. <laughs> Instead real of, men? So Don't real men, teach? right. Well, this is getting into some bit of complex uh, <laughs> subject matter because we had Robert Bly's whole thing with the men's movement, but then he started that thing where he started talking about the soft man who's just sort of too cuddly and too concerned with his emotions, and he goes around with a cardigan and he hugs everybody and he's losing uh, touch with a certain aspect of his masculinity. It's another hour's conversation that make me hoarse. I think there's something yeah. to it. Yeah, no, I, I was, I listened to a lot of Robert Bly's stuff, and I think that was a necessary thing that was part of our evolution. And there was this huge turning of the tables between men and women in a way, a lot of guilt and shame on men. And the pendulum, you know, that's the way things work in this outer world. There's, things swing from extreme to extreme, and we end up spending very little time in the middle. That's a, uh, that's a very good way of saying it, I think, because I think, uh, I don't know. I mean, I know that gender issues are important, but sometimes I think that gender issues can get too attached to the gender part of it and the human part of it. I mean, gender goes deep, but deeper than gender is the human situation itself. Uh, Mircea Iliad, the uh, great Romanian historian of religions, wrote a wonderful essay about the primordial androgene and the sense that in the beginning, in paradise, in uh, the time before the fall, we all possessed equally masculine and a feminine side and the falling into masculinity and femininity is an aspect of that fall away from unity which um, cultures all around the world acknowledge and sometimes i think the gender arguments can get too tied up in one side or another and they can lose sight of that true unity where male and female are acknowledged as coming from the same central place. Exactly. Um, Two sides know, of the same the pendulum coin. pendulum can swing too hard. Yeah. The, re the realization and recognition that they're two sides of the same coin. That even though, yeah. even though we outwardly we are manifested as either male or female, inwardly we combine both. And I think sometimes um, if we read too much into our physical sexuality, we can lose track of the 
non-visible, non-tangible source of gender, which goes so deeply. But, you know, it's, it's mm-hmm. such a complicated issue, and it's one that I, you know, it's one that young people approach today in a way that is very different from where it was approached when I was 17, and I can't at yeah. all mm-hmm. yeah, say more, I, I really understand it. Or, well, I think they're more fluid um, about it. They handle it in a more fluid way. They're, they have much less in the way of inhibitions or the inhibitions that we had and that our parents had. I won't say your parents or, or my parents so much, but most of our Western societies. Yeah, I guess, I guess I'm a little wigged out by just how fluid it is. It's true. Like my daughter goes to a college where there don't seem to be any women's or men's rooms. There's just bathrooms. And I guess it's a middle-aged man, and he scratches his head and says, why is that? So, yeah, I think you might be right. Yeah. <laughs> but that's that's what happens as the generations move forward. There's always something that, you know, the older people have difficulty understanding. Why on earth one would want to do that? Absolutely. Well, we have our older layers of conditioning, which they, hopefully, they... Don't. Or they have what they have, and we may not be able to comprehend what they have. Yeah, absolutely. I agree. You I have do. to say, this has been the most bizarre radio show I've been on uh, ever. Well, thank you. I'll take that as a compliment. <laughs> yeah, that no, was a total compliment, and uh, really a lot to... of fun. Yeah, yeah. It really is a demonstration of what kind of a state it is up there, that you're allowed to sit in a station and broadcast something like this. I think it's absolutely fabulous. And, and uh, yeah, and we there should be more of it. And even though we didn't get to talk directly about your book, I think ah, we actually, who cares? It's all right. Yeah, but we I think we actually talked about the underlying message, perhaps. Yeah, we talked about the stuff that's of interest to me, and that's always fun. Uh huh. And it was interesting seeing how many experiences we share in common. And you know, Owen Barfield said, talking about C.S. Lewis, he said. Some writers write a different book every time. Other writers write the same book again and again and again. And I love that because I just write the same book again and again and again. Sometimes I have to make it more pop. Sometimes I can make it more, you know, personal and eccentric. But it's the same book again and again. And you add new stories. I find new ways of, I mean, I hope I'm not, when I say that, I hope I'm not just locked in a way of looking at things and not growing at all. But, you know, there are certain basic concerns that stay with you through life because they're just the ones that you seem to have been born to be interested in. And my books are an example of somebody who's interested in a certain central set of concerns and seems to just find different ways of narrating them. Yeah. And some stories are worth being told over and over and over again. Richard Schuon, a very strange Swiss philosopher of religion, said, that which is true can bear repetition. Yep. And I always thought that was a pretty uh, pretty on-the-mark statement. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I don't know, maybe sometime we could actually talk about your book. Who knows? Who but knows? It's not necessary. Okay, well, <laughs> well I've, I've thoroughly enjoyed this, and I'm glad this turned out the way it did. Well, thank you so much for having me. It was really fun. Thank you for being on. Great. Take care. You too. Bye-bye. And that was Ptolemy Tompkins, author of numerous books, including The Modern Book of the Dead. His latest book just out is Proof of Angels, 
the definitive book on the reality of angels and the surprising role they play in each of our lives. His father was Peter Tompkins, the well-known co-author of the infamous The Secret Life of Plants. I'm sure many or most of you have read that book. I read that many, many years ago and was delighted to find out that Ptolemy was his son. And I was actually very curious to talk to him about his life as a result of having those kind of influences growing up. And, well, that's what happened on the show. Magical, huh? This is the Magical Mystery Tour on WGDR Plainfield and WGDH Hardwick. very interesting interview of Terence McKenna, one of the most brilliant thinkers of the 20th century, talking about the relationship of time, the human mind, and his Time Wave Zero project with the I Ching. Stay with us. going to examine the nature of time and the relationship between time and the human mind. With me is Terence McKenna, a specialist in shamanistic traditions and also hallucinogens. Terence is the author of The Invisible Landscape, Time, Hallucinogens, and the I Ching. In addition, he is the developer of a computer software program called TimeWave Zero. Welcome, Terence. It's a pleasure to be here. You know, shamanistic peoples and early peoples throughout the entire world have all been involved in systems of what we call divination. It could be throwing bones or using the I Ching or looking at the entrails of animals or clouds of smoke, but each system seemed to involve some sort of a unique way of linking the human mind with, with the very nature of time itself in order to understand cycles of time and understand perhaps even to predict the future. Yes, well, it's certainly true that pre-literate and aboriginal peoples have had an obsession with time. However, it's an obsession shared by the historical societies as well. Time seems to be the dimension about which we have the greatest anxiety, perhaps because it's the dimension into which we see with the least clarity. Numerous peoples throughout the world have dealt with this lack of clarity as far as time is concerned by developing various methods of divination or sortilege, as it's called. 
the Maya to this day practice sortilege of a very complicated sort in the highlands of Guatemala. African peoples have complex divinatory systems. We don't have to even mention the enormous sales of the I Ching and Tarodex and astrology products here in the United States. Yes, the I Ching is the divinatory system, Ni Plus Ultra. It seems to very early have captured the imagination of Western Orientalists James Legg and Richard Wilhelm. Their translations made it available to the Western world and the psychologist Carl Jung in inventing and discussing the phenomenon that he called synchronicity popularized the I Ching by using it as an example of this mm -hmm. particular phenomenon. And I know in the literature today, especially in transpersonal psychology, there are many psychotherapists who use the I Ching as a regular part of their practice. And parapsychologists have found striking evidence that the coincidences of, of tossing the coins in the I Ching do have psychological validity. Yes, well the thing which amazed me about the I Ching and caused me to become so deeply involved with it is this fact that it seems to work against all rational expectation, the carrying out of this uh, random ritualistic activity seems then to give a reading which is in fact applicable to the unique situation. Now Jung's explanation of this was what he called a causal connectedness or synchronicity. This was simply the idea that it was possible for there to be a coincidence of uh, congruence between an internal state, a psychological state, and an exterior event. An obvious example of this would be you think of someone you haven't thought of for years, and an hour later in the mail a letter arrives from them. And Jung was fascinated by these kinds of apparent coordinations of the interiorized psychic sphere and the exterior three-dimensional objective world. My approach went somewhat deeper than Jung's in that I felt that I had looked at many divinatory systems with the notion that I was looking at artifacts of culture, productions of the human mind that were to a large degree arbitrary. My involvement with the I Ching led me very slowly and reluctantly to the conclusion that this was not simply a product of a cultural mentality or the stance of a particular people in a time and a place, but rather that the ancient Chinese had somehow gotten a leg up even on modern physics and had produced a theory about time that was in fact objectively possible to correlate with our own experience. In other words, a theory of time much more akin to a physicist's uh, description of it than a shaman's description of it. And you mentioned in your introduction this time wave zero software that we've developed. What we've done is simply to formalize the notion of the Tao to make a deep study of the mathematics inherent in the structure of the sequence 
of the I Ching. See, most people are quite familiar with the fact that the I Ching is composed of hexagrams. Hexagrams have six lines. They may be broken, they may be unbroken. Less well known is the fact that there is a very ancient <coughs> tradition, even before the Han Dynasty, of a particular sequence being the correct sequence. It's called the King Wen sequence. And while it has been agreed upon by all scholars commenting on the matter that the King Wen sequence is somehow primary, no one had ever explained how it was ordered. In the order of hexagrams from 1 to 64. That's correct. Why is the first one the hexagram with all solid lines? Why is the second one the hexagram with all broken lines? And so forth and so on. I carried out an exhaustive mathematical analysis of the properties of the King Wen sequence and reached a number of conclusions such as it is not a random sequence. It was very, very carefully constructed to conserve certain mathematical goals. For instance, the number of lines that break as you transit from one hexagram to another is arranged and controlled in such a way that when you're all done, you have a ratio of even to odd of three to four. Yet this is achieved without any breakages, first order of different breakages of magnitude five. Now you're beginning to lose me a little bit. Yes, well, what this all means very simply is that the King Wen sequence was constructed by minds the equal of research mathematicians working in the world today. It sort of reminds me of builders of the great Greek temples who used the mystical rectangle. Proportion and <laughs> symmetry seems mm -hmm. to be the central concern here. You see, we have inherited from our fascination with Eastern philosophy the idea of Tao. And Tao in the East is a concept which antedates the introduction of Buddhism into China by many, many centuries. Tao is the notion of a flux which comes and goes, a transient medium which builds structures up and pulls them apart according to its internal dynamic. Now, because these notions were introduced to the West by mystics, and philosophers and people with an interest in metaphysics, it wasn't immediately grasped that a philosophy of this sort could be a mathematical formalism. That if we're talking about a medium which comes and goes, we're talking about a wave mechanical phenomenon. WGDR Plainfield, WGDH Hardwick. Well, science in the West for the past 150 years has developed a powerful set of techniques for dealing with wave phenomena. And, and you seem to be suggesting then that the 64 hexagrams of the I Ching in their mathematical relationship one to the other as you go through the sequence describes a wave form. A wave form which is experienced in the world by human beings as time and history. In Western science, we're pretty confident that there are approximately approximately a hundred elements, physical elements, to matter. That's right. Different atoms. That's right. That are incommensurable. Mm -hmm. They are somehow primary. 
the Chinese looked not at the world of matter, energy, and space, but the world of time, mm -hmm. and carried out a very rigorous analysis of their own perception, uh -huh. and discovered to their amazement that time is actually composed of elements. And as we have then, if, if I can extrapolate from what you're saying, the periodic table of, of elements in Western chemistry, which defines not just a hundred elements, but a relationship between them, cycles and patterns. Bonding relationships, that's right. Families of uh, ways of looking at time. Well, the hexagrams are the elements mm -hmm. in the Chinese physics of time. They created a science that reinforces primary perception that we all have, but for which we have no science. For instance, I'm sure you've noticed that every day is rather like every other day. Nevertheless, I'm sure you've also noticed that some days are radically different than others. Well, this sameness but different rule applies on all levels in a temporal hierarchy. Centuries are rather like each other. And yet, occasionally, a century will come along that is quite anomalous. We call this sameness and difference nesting fractal. This is a new branch of mathematics. And quite simply, what the Chinese discovered circa 3000 BC was the fractal nature of time, that the rules of expression of temporal elements which govern the rise and fall of dynasties also govern the rise and fall of love affairs and moods. Now you're describing this in mathematical terms and I'd like to come back and ask you to define the term fractal in a moment but I'm also curious about how you seem to be going back and forth between something purely quantitative and something qualitative. Well, that's the interesting thing, you see. The Chinese understood that these temporal elements were, in a sense, creating interference patterns with each other, much in the way that pure tones struck out on a keyboard will, through their interference with each other, create a melody. So that, for instance, if I find myself sitting in Hadrian's hamburger joint enjoying a burger, by this theory, there would actually be a relationship between that act and the Emperor Hadrian's campaigns in Britain before the fall of the Roman Empire. This is the amazing thing which James Joyce used and understood in the construction of his literary works, that a man leaving his home in Dublin on a day in 1905 to buy kidneys to fry for breakfast is in some mysterious way actually repeating the peregrinations of the hero Odysseus around the Mediterranean in his campaign to destroy Troy and return to his faithful wife. Allegory is what we're talking about, but allegory has never been taken seriously by science. Analogical reasoning is definitely déclassé in the better laboratories. But in this ancient Chinese way of looking at things, everything was caused by its analogical resonances with past and future events which had the same temporal elements embedded in them. Now, it's difficult to go 
into this without resorting to uh, at least charts and diagrams, if not puzzling equations with sigmas embedded in them. Well, let me step back for a moment, because we've been talking very intensively about the I Ching, which is one system, a very popular and profound and highly respected system of this type. But there are other comparable systems. For example, there's astrology. That's right. Astrology is another one of these systems that seeks to define prepotent relationships in nature that can be known by man in order to ease movement into the future. The success of astrology, I think, is borne out by its persistence. It is, after all, one of the most persistent of human intellectual tools. It was developed four or five thousand years ago. I think what troubles modern human beings about astrology is that it is a mechanistic system. It's like a group of cogs and wheels which all can turn at given rates and therefore their end states can be predicted. But then we're dealing again with the nature of nested cycles. Well, we have a strong intuition of free mm -hmm. will, and this is why I think Quantum physics, with its probabilistic notion of determinacy, has been so attractive to the modern mind. My conclusions looking at the I Ching have been that it is not possible to know the future. For if it were possible to know it, life would be a determinism and thinking would be divorced from meaning. Mm -hmm and we would be out of business. But what is possible to know about the future is levels of novelty which future states will fulfill by the happenstance of unpredictable events. Now this is a formal way of saying we know where the road goes but we don't know what the scenery looks like. I think where the future is concerned, we can know where the road goes, mm -hmm. but we cannot know what the scenery will look like. People who have looked at my theory have said, well, these time maps that your computer draws, you're trying to get rid of the future. And as a matter of fact, a map of time no more eliminates the future than a map of South America eliminates the need to go there. It simply gives one a better handle on one's destination. Now, you mentioned quantum physics a moment ago. And yes. In, in quantum physics, there, there are a number of different notions related to the future. One is a notion of multiple universes. Another is a notion of everything is probabilistic. And while we can't know with any certainty what will happen, we can state with very probabilities what the possibilities are. Uh, how does this relate to your view of the time in the future? Well, I think that at the macrophysical level, things are rather rigidly determined with the exception of living organisms. So my interpretation of what biology is and how it relates to quantum physics and time is really biological systems are amplifiers of quantum mechanical indeterminacy. Yes. They are a way of taking the smidgen of indeterminacy that exists at the microphysical level and coaxing it into a kind of macrophysical cascade which is life, consciousness, and self-reflection. And you see this described in the I Ching. Yes, I think the I Ching is an abstract 
perfect modeling system for breaking this down to its simplest elements and then seeing how it works. Now, we're accustomed to thinking of science as linear progress from the distant past <coughs> to the present. What I'm suggesting is that at least in the matter of time, the Chinese of the pre-Han period had a much more true and formally applicable notion mm -hmm. of time than we ourselves do. Mm -hmm. We have failed in our effort to assimilate time into our physics because of our obsession with matter and the release of energy. Now, there are some scholars who suggest that the African uh, Yoruba people with their system of divination called Ifa, which has a cycle I think of 244 or 264 various myths and, and stories, is, is even more sophisticated than the I Ching, which has only 64. Have you looked into that? I have looked into it. What makes the I Ching so powerful in my mind mm -hmm. is that it appears to be an exact analogy to the mechanism of DNA. There are 64 codons, mm -hmm. which code for amino acids in DNA. There are 64 hexagrams. There are eight primary hexagrams. There are eight indispensable amino acids. I felt that really the I Ching is like mankind's best shot mm -hmm. at this because it has this reflection mm -hmm. in the biological matrix out mm -hmm. of which consciousness emerged. In, in other words, the, the various ancient divination systems may all reflect a, a striving of human beings towards this intuitive understanding of the cyclical nature of time and the relationship between mind and the flow of time, and yet the I Ching may have just sort of hit the nail on the head better than the others. Well, it's like looking at a 17th century description of the motion of the planets or a 20th century description. Mm -hmm. These are basically refinements. But yes, I think that the I Ching represents a primary perception of the organization of mind, time, and matter. And I'll even tell you how I think they got a leg up. I think basically there is a tradition in Central Asia of the so-called stilling the heart techniques vis-a-vis -vis yoga. These are techniques where vital functions are suppressed. Breathing becomes very minimal. All exterior inputs are suspended. And eventually, I think the Chinese sages who practiced this form of meditation noticed a flux at the center of the stillness, which they called Tao and which they set out to phenomenologically describe, not knowing whether it was physics, organism, or deity. And they did not prejudge this question. They simply gave a phenomenological description of the transcendental flux that they encountered in states of deep yogic ecstasy. And lo and behold, it turns out that this is the perfect technique for studying time. Time is not a phenomenon where you build machines with eight kilometer diameters that cost trillions of dollars. Time is a phenomenon to be studied by attending dinner parties, perhaps, or pursuing love affairs, or watching the passing of the seasons, activities much more 
more commiserate with our vision of the Taoist sage than the white-coated scientist of the present world religion of science. So, really, I think it was an involvement in organism and in the human experience. In other words, the laboratory for studying time would not so much be our observatories or our systems of quartz clocks, but rather looking inside of ourselves, observing our own organism. That's exactly precise, and the workings of our own psychology. To my mind, uh, the greatest commentator on time in the 20th century after Albert Einstein would certainly have to be Marcel Proust. Proust understood more about the time we experience and was able to communicate it than any person who has ever lived. And that's within the confines of what most people consider a fairly effete, highbrow literary project. Swan's Way. Well, the entirety of the remembrance of things. Yes. I haven't read that, so you've got me a bit in the dark here. We have about five minutes left, so could you summarize that point or amplify it a bit? Well, I think the point we're trying to make here that I have been involved with over the past few years is that a revisioning of time would assuage much of what is called modern anxiety and that we have limited the categories we were willing to entertain in dealing with this problem and that we must genuflect to the ancient Chinese and take a page from their notebook in this matter the I Ching as a divinatory system of great age reflecting the dynamics of our own genetic material and also, though I didn't mention this this evening, it also has deep calendrical properties can be used to keep track of time lays a basis for an understanding of this curious phenomenon called synchronicity the coincidental meshing of interior psychic events and exterior events in the real world. It lays a basis for us to understand the unity of ourselves with the real world that our present approach makes difficult to discern. So whereas Carl Jung, who wrote, incidentally, the preface to Richard Wilhelm's book of the I Ching and postulated this theory of synchronicity, well, well, Jung didn't really provide any mechanism for synchronicity. He, he simply said it works this way, that the mind seems to be related to these events, and he found an enormous therapeutic benefit from that understanding. What you're suggesting is that the potential mechanism behind the Jungian notion of synchronicity has to do with the structure of time itself. That's and, right. And you must be suggesting, therefore, that the human mind at this very deep level that the sages discovered from stilling their organism, that the mind has a parallel structure. And isomorphic structure. That's exactly the central point. The mind arises out of matter. This is why the I Ching works in both worlds. One is the reflection of the other. The key to healing the apparent dualism lies in studying the temporal mechanics indicated by the I Ching. And I believe we've done this formally, mathematically. Terence McKenna, you're taking the provocative position that the I Ching, which some people view as religion and other people dismiss as superstition, is actually a science. And, and I gather that your computer software package, Time Wave Zero, proposes to be the demonstration of that. We believe it does demonstrate it. Of course, ultimately, it will be up to our colleagues to judge the worth of our case. 
Terrence, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for being with me. Well, it's been a pleasure to be here, Jeffrey, and discuss this with you. It's not an easy subject, believe me. In the Amazon, all was chaos and mythic revelation, but I knew that you couldn't bring that back as a scientific theory, and my bias has always been toward science. And out of these many intuitions and revelations, I discerned a thread which was about time. It began with a conversation with this Logos entity where it said to me, did you know every day is composed of four other days? And I said, no, I not only didn't know that, it's never occurred to me. What a bizarre idea. So this idea then of a time being a resonance created by other times, not immediately before or after it, as in scientific causality, but somehow a day centuries ago, centuries in the future, come together to create an interference pattern that creates the unique moment. So that was one of the basic assumptions. And then the structure on which this all was hung was the I Ching which may seem exotic to American and European audiences, but which is, of course, as familiar to anyone in Chinese society as the Declaration of Independence is to us. And what is the I Ching? Well, it's a very ancient method of divining and predicting the future based on the idea that every moment can be symbolized by a, a unique ideogram, which is somehow its essence, much in the way that science believes you can explain all nature with 108 elements, the ancient Chinese took the position that time itself was made of elements. My style of thinking is scientific enough that if I were to say to somebody, I propose a revolution in physics based on what I know about an ancient Chinese divinatory system, that would seem foolish to me. It seems occult. It seems unscientific. Why should an ancient Chinese book of divination hold any insight whatsoever for modern physics? But the uncanny thing about the I Ching is that it seems to work. Even in the hands of its critics, it seems to work. So let me try out a metaphor on you, which I think makes much more clear what's going on here. Visualize for a moment sand dunes. And notice when you look at these sand dunes in your mind that they look like wind. Sand dunes look like wind in some sense. Well, then analyze the situation. What is wind? Wind is a pressure variant phenomena that fluctuates over time. In a way, the sand grains moved about by the wind are like a lower dimensional slice of the wind itself. And from photographic analysis of dunes, you can calculate the speed and duration of the wind that made them. So the dune is a lower dimensional slice of time, of the wind ebbing and flowing that made it. Well, now let's change the metaphor a little bit. Instead of grains of sand, let's think of genes. Instead of a windstorm, Let's think of a billion years of evolution. It moves the genes around in a pattern 
which is a lower dimensional slice of the force which created the situation. In other words, on every living organism, there is the imprint of the higher dimensional force which made it. Now, somebody could say, well, that's God. Well, but in a scientific context, we don't speak like that. But whatever it is that made blind matter into whales, squirrels, and human beings, it left its calling card inside each human being, each squirrel, each whale. That's the DNA. Well, the DNA codons are based on a system of 64, exactly like the I Ching. So my belief is that someone, some group of people thousands of years ago, looked into human organism, looked by meditative techniques into the center of their own beings, and they were not mystics, nor were they empiricists. They were simply curious. But at the center of the meditative experience, they saw an ebb and flow, an energy field that was in a constant state of flux. And they asked themselves, how many elements are necessary to describe this energy field? And the answer was more than 10, less than a thousand, more than 20, less than 500. And when they finally got it worked out, lo and behold, 64 situations are all the possible potential situations there are. Out of 64 subtypes of time, you can create everything from the coronation of Queen Mary to the resignation of Madonna out of 64 types of time. So really, what the I Ching is, is not a book of Chinese mysticism. It's a book of uh, molecular dynamics that sees through biology to the physics that allowed biology to come into existence. And I'll argue this with anybody in the field, regardless of how hardcore an empiricist they claim themselves to be, because I think the coincidence between the structure of the I Ching and the structure of the DNA is staggering. It's not a simple correspondence between 64 and 64. All the processes that occur in DNA can be easily modeled with the six-line hexagrams that make up the I Ching. It's almost as though Western science was fascinated by energy. For 5,000 years we pursued understanding energy. And this process ends with thermal nuclear explosions in the deserts of the American Southwest. We can light the fire that burns in the heart of the distant stars. We know how to do that. That's what the Western mind achieved, political issues aside. The Eastern mind was not interested in energy. It was interested in time. And they spent 5,000 years deconstructing it, looking at it. And you don't use atom smashers. You don't use enormous physical pressure. It's a different problem, and you bring different tools to bear. You meditate. You look inside yourself. You study the movement of water around pebbles. You consider the situation. You study history. In any case, the bottom line is 
the people who pursued this understanding of time achieved as sophisticated a relationship to time as the Western relationship to matter expressed through our ability to trigger fusion and fission. So there's a great deal for us to learn in the West from these Oriental efforts to understand time. And it is not necessarily mystical. What I did was entirely mathematical. It's not transparent to a person who has not studied mathematics. But to a professional mathematician, it's utterly trivial. There's nothing occult about it. And uh, I, I think true understanding can be communicated and formally described with mathematics. And that's what we have here. We're on the brink of a fusion of Western science with quote-unquote Eastern mysticism. Nothing mystical about it except that we call it mysticism. But the fusion of these two viewpoints is going to give us a complete understanding of the universe of space-time, matter, and energy. Are you real? Or some strange angel? Terence McKenna, first piece interviewed by Jeffrey Mishlove, and the second piece, actually both pieces, were titled Time and the I Ching, both from back in the mid to late 1990s. And that's about it for this Magical Mystery Tour. We go out with this piece by DJ Food from their classic album Kaleidoscope, also from the mid to late 1990s. Thank you so much for listening, and have a great week. <laughs>